This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I'm Talib Vizram, and you're listening to Fast Break, your weekly source of inspiration and motivation in these uncertain times. This week, we'll hear from Sophia Bush on the role gender plays in Hollywood. Then we'll continue with our election coverage by taking a look at poll watching. This is your fast break. Pipeline CEO and founder Kartika Roy has been a recent guest on our show, but today she's the one asking the questions. She might be most well-known as Brooke Davis on One Tree Hill, but Sophia Bush's work as an advocate for gender equity in the film industry is what we're here to talk about today. An activist and host of the podcast Work in Progress, Sophia also has a remarkable Instagram account that I recommend checking out. Welcome to the show, Sophia. I'm so excited about this. It's so nice to see you. Likewise, and thank you for for making time for doing, uh, you know, to record this with us. And I also, you know, wanted to thank you. I have a little girl, she's nine, and, you know, she knew when I was on your podcast and I, you know, that's something that sort of this idea that what she sees her mom do is something that's possible for her. And then, of course, we saw you on television shortly thereafter. And this idea that she's nine and she looks up and it's, it's she can do what she loves and she can have a voice. And that's so mm. important. So thank you for using your voice. Well, that's honestly the greatest. I, I think from the time that I was young, you know, from the time that I was your daughter's age, I really was so immensely frustrated when someone would tell me I couldn't do something. And in particular, when someone would say, well, girls don't do that, or nice girls don't do that. Because really what that means is nice girls are deferential. Nice Mm -hmm. girls are quiet. They make themselves small. They stay out of the way. And I didn't like being treated like an accessory. And I don't think any woman should be. You know, we're 51% of the population. And in our bodies and in our experience out in the world, we have 51% of the information about how the world works. I listened to this incredible Catholic nun speak to Oprah years ago, Sister Joan, and she said the idea that people with less than 50% of the information, being men, are making 100% of the decisions Mm -hmm. is why we see so much pain, greed, and suffering in the world. Mm -hmm. I realized that even before I'd heard it phrased so perfectly in, in the way that she explained it, that's always been the way that I felt. It's not that we deserve more, but we certainly deserve equal. And it's the right thing to do from an economic perspective, too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the things on that sort of reaching hand back, I wanted to talk a little bit about Time's Up and your involvement, and then I think even more broadly, equity. So can you talk a little bit about what propelled you to actually get involved in Time's Up and move that forward? Yeah, I mean, early days, when I, I was called by one of the other women who was an early signer, as I was, who just said, look, we're, we're done. Time's up. How much longer are we going to have these conversations among our groups of friends? How much longer are we as women going to have these conversations on the side of our sets? What does it mean that in every industry, whether you're talking about the entertainment industry, you know, focused on artistry and and content creation, or you're talking about female farm workers, or you're talking about women in medicine or women in academia, women are suffering. And this is such a pervasive and insidious issue 
And if we, again, have the privilege of these platforms, what are we going to do with it? Mm -hmm. And I think I was one of the earliest folks to get in the mix on that because I've always been so publicly active in terms of politics and as an activist. A lot mm -hmm. of people have, have said to me privately, I don't know how you do that. You're very, very brave. I can't rock the boat like that. And I guess the thing for me is that I don't care if I lose the endorsement. I don't care if somebody says, oh, she's too political for that. What am I doing making more money selling, I don't know, lip gloss or mouthwash or something, if I'm turning my back on women to do it? What is mm -hmm. the point? How much do we all really need? And for me, knowing that I have that, I don't know, dogged obsession with preserving and fighting for the truth and that for other people that's scarier than it is for me i figure okay this is this is exactly where i can show up you know the fight mm -hmm. needs every person with every kind of skill set whether in terms of your political activism you're willing to be very extroverted like i am or you're an introvert who sits at home and makes the drawing that goes on the poster for the women's march like all of us matter and the cool thing about Time's Up is that it's really about decentralized power, which is what movements are supposed to be. Everyone has taken the baton. Everyone has done different things. You know, when, when they took over the carpet at the Golden Globes and wore black and forced, forced a conversation so that people couldn't say, what are you wearing? Yeah. <laughs> so reductive. Um, yeah. People were like, oh, wow, these people are wearing black dresses. Who cares? It mattered. It literally shifted the entire conversation. It was about... How do you work within the system as it exists? And so we did that and I couldn't be there. I was on set, I was away working and I was sitting at home watching my cohorts, my, my friends do this incredible thing and, and create an entire evening of conversation, take the global stage and turn it toward equity for women and to talk about what it's like to exist in a space where everyone has always turned a blind eye to harassment. And again, mm -hmm. not just in our industry, in all industries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, wa watching it, it was so important and empowering for someone who, who at the time didn't have that sort of platform. So, you know, Hollywood and the film industry in particular has a huge impact on the stories we tell, the cultural narratives that we have. And so I'd love to, you know, learn a little bit more about, from your perspective, what does gender inequity in the film industry mean to you as someone who's really well-versed in Hollywood? To talk a little bit more about gender equity in the film industry and what that means. I mean, it's so multifaceted and it, and it really runs the gamut from being on set with the crew, which nobody ever nobody from the outside ever really sees that dynamic all the way up to the upper echelons of who's in control and who's producing the films and shows and who's writing the films and shows and who runs all of the studios. There are so many incredible examples of the difference between storytelling when it's an all male team in power or a female team in power or a diverse team in power. I even think back to a great example before Wonder Woman came out there were a bunch of directors kind of in contention and the books, the sort of decks that they'd made leaked. You saw the costume design from the perspective of a man who was going to make a, a movie about female superheroes and a woman who was going to make a movie about female superheroes. And the two images side by side, I think they'd probably be really easy for you guys to find, 
are, yeah. you're like, there it is. There's nothing about the Wonder Woman that we saw directed by a woman that isn't incredibly powerful. And yeah, everybody looks sexy, but they look strong and mm -hmm. they don't look sexualized. And mm -hmm. what the other director was proposing was just more sexualization, more skin, more exposure, and it's not necessary. And in the same way that the Bechdel test is a measure of the representation of women in fiction. And one of the things that it requires is that if there are two women talking to each other on screen, they have a conversation about something other than a man. And historically, it has been so hard to find any content in which that's happening. And these are the types of things that for us matter so immensely in terms of what we see reflected. When mm -hmm. all we see reflected is women are obsessed with boys, women fight over boys, women give up lifelong friendships over boys, um, women stab each other in the back over men or promotions. It's insidious. It encourages mm -hmm. us to look at each other as competition rather than as partners, rather than as collaborators, rather than as the teammates that we have the potential to have for life. I think about how many incredible female friendships I have that have outlasted every relationship I've ever been in. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what are we talking about? You know, my, my girlfriend who I did One Tree Hill with, Hillary Burton, she and I have talked about how, you know, that show was written by a man who, by the way, was a sexual predator and a total creep and constantly pitting girls and women against each other. You know, Daniil Harris and I, as characters, had to say the most horrendous things about each other mm. on screen. It was awful. It, it, it added to this horrible feeling of tension at work. It, it made everybody so uncomfortable. And the girls still somehow, I think because we cared about each other, and I think because we all really went through all of the ups and downs with each other that you do when you spend nine years of your, you know, formative life together. Mm -hmm we came out the other side and Hillary and I for years have been talking about how we were the love story. Mm. Our characters, Brooke and Peyton, the best friends on that show, we were the love story. You mm -hmm. know, Brooke and Haley, we were the love story. These mm -hmm. guys like cheated on us and screwed us over and did yeah. nightmarish things. And we had to pick up the pieces always as the women and all this stuff. But it was us, it was the women mm -hmm. who were the love story. And that's how I want all of us, regardless of, you know, whether we're in school or 40 years into careers, I want us to look at women as a sacred circle. I want us to look at our friends as our great love story. And that feels like it's coming. Mm. I feel like we're having different conversations. I also feel like when we're seeing more women at the table, we're seeing stories we've never mm -hmm. had the opportunity to experience. You know, Lena Waithe made The Shy. We see what happens with Zendaya being one of the youngest producers on television and the story that she was able to tell with Euphoria about how much young people are struggling. Mm -hmm. And we see a young woman struggling with addiction and her sexuality and her identity. These are things that were always poo-pooed and called taboo before. Mm -hmm. and people don't understand when they've always seen themselves on screen how revolutionary it is to see potential mirrored back at you for the first time that's why these stories matter we talked earlier about wonder woman the 
image of her when she was in no man's land with her shield. When I saw that the first time, I was like, that's what it's like to be a woman in the workplace. I have, right. <laughs> I have no idea if there was any thought about the imagery of that, what that would be, but that, that was my, my takeaway. Mm -hmm. You know, has gender inequity either limited or changed your uh, opportunities in Hollywood as an actress or a director or a producer? And if so, how? Absolutely. I mean, I, I quit a job because of inequity and harassment and assault. I quit my job right before the Harvey story broke, mm. before Time's Up launched. It was a completely different world. It was the Wild West. And despite repeated attacks on my personhood, all of which were witnessed, despite people in the double digits speaking to HR about the abusive nature of this person's behavior, despite every single avenue, you know, doing it the low key way, asking for help, eventually going the legal route, all of it, none of it mattered. And I thought, I'm sorry, I did not assault myself. Mm. What do I and the other women who've been subjected to this person's behavior, what do we have to do with this? You're yelling at me because I haven't been small, quiet, and polite mm. because I'm sick of dealing with it because I don't want to come to work literally armoring up every single day. My cortisol levels are through the roof. My adrenals are failing. The stress is so intense for me. And you're telling me I caused a problem mm. because I went to so many people for help with this who did nothing that then I called the legal team who's supposed to deal with this. And the number one rule of how that works is that it's all supposed to be confidential and it wasn't. So the retaliation that I then experienced was mm. unlike anything I ever thought possible. Nothing happened to the man. Yeah. If I one time had behaved the way he had, I probably would have lost my job. Mm. If I one time had been as abusive to our crew, I probably would have lost my job. It would not have been tolerated. My demand that my bodily autonomy be respected was not tolerated. Mm -hmm. And so I did the thing that no one thought that I would do and I quit my job. And everybody was like, what? And then do you know what they tried to do? When I talked about how there just wasn't concern for the way people were being treated on set and, and as that became unbearable for me, mm -hmm. I could see it kind of everywhere, including in how, you know, the lowest folks on the totem pole were treated in literally close to deadly weather conditions. Then the, the people who were mad that I stood up for myself tried to spin it into a story that I quit my job because it was cold. Hmm. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is, um, this is some patriarchy at work kind of shit. I've never seen anything like this in my life. None of this is normal. Mm -hmm. And I think whether we're looking at it on a national scale or in interpersonal relationships, it is up to us to really be clear about that mm -hmm. so that we can create a different model of operating moving forward for men and women and everyone in between. Yes, so that we can show up and bring our lived experience to what we're doing. Sophia, this is so amazing. Thank you so much for, for spending you. so much time with us and your authenticity and your stories and you're just amazing. So I just am so grateful that you you made time and, and, and for this conversation. Thank you. I just love getting to hang with you and this is so cool. This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com.
Last episode, Ruth spoke with Professor Paul Barrett about misinformation during this election cycle. So this week, I wanted to take a look at how voting is being monitored. There's been a lot of talk about poll watching and some misinformation about it too. First off, poll watching is a legal right in most states when it's done correctly. And each state has different qualifications and procedures. But essentially, the practice of poll watching allows ordinary citizens to observe voting at the ballot box. Most poll watchers are partisan and they're sent by political parties or campaigns. There are also non-partisan and academic poll watchers who go in order to conduct research. Sometimes there are international watchers too. The confusion over poll watching has been exacerbated by the president. He has lied about the integrity of the election and voter fraud, which he ties to the increase in mail-in voting. As a result, he's encouraged his supporters to go to the polls and watch very carefully. You know, I think this is just part of a general effort to try to create confusion and concern. And so he's riling up people because it fits the narrative that somehow all these votes are going to get cast that are illegal. That's Robert Brandon. He's president and CEO of the Fair Election Center. Based on his past experience, Brandon says poll watchers will be very wary of causing trouble because they know voter intimidation is a violation of the law, punishable by a fine or imprisonment. So while poll watching is legal, it can easily cross over into voter intimidation territory. The Republican poll watcher recruitment effort is taking the form of officially enlisting citizens into an army for Trump. In a recent online video, Donald Trump Jr. urges every able-bodied man and woman to join the army for Trump's election security operation. This, in addition to Trump stoking right-wing extremist sentiment, has raised concern about safety at election sites. I'm willing to do anything. I want to see well, peace. Then do it, sir. Say I'm... it. Do it. Say it. Do you want to call him? What do you want to call him? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacists and white supremacists. Proud boys. Proud boys. Stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left. Here's Chris Brown, president of Brady United Against Gun Violence. Trump has done in saying stand by is to give those people a sense of license that combined with his remarks about training poll workers, there is a concern that we have that certain of those groups in certain states have been emboldened to think about potential armed activity. She says the NRA's mantra that guns everywhere make people safer is simply false. But there's a real risk that people, especially these paramilitary groups, may bring guns to the polls as intimidation tools. The real question I have is why anyone thinks they need a gun at a polling place. These aren't Wild West shootouts. These are highly secured places and they're public places. It's not in the back of a dark saloon in the basement. Right now, there are only six states that expressly ban guns at the polls. And Michigan just joined that group. Michigan's Secretary of State recently issued a directive that bans individuals from carrying guns into polling places on election day. It prohibits the open carry of firearms within 100 feet of entrances to polling places, clerk's offices, or absentee vote counting sites. If states don't pass similar laws, 
and even if they do, the responsibility to scope out and report guns will likely come down to poll workers. Brady and other gun reform groups want to make sure these volunteers are trained to handle and de-escalate voter intimidation and report any sightings of firearms. They'll be encouraged to call the Election Protection Hotline to report issues to volunteers who can then notify the necessary officials. Despite all of the elevated concerns, Brandon remains optimistic that in the end, it's just a lot of talk. There are rules in place, there's procedures in place to protect voters, and I think, you know, again, we tell everybody that the last thing you want to do is not vote because somebody has something vague about uh, discouraging you from voting. For more information about some organizations that have been working on poll monitoring recruitment efforts, check out our show notes. That's it for this week. Fast Break was produced by Avery Miles. Be sure to check in with us next week for another roundup of helpful tips and creative ideas to stay positive throughout this challenging time. You can subscribe to Fast Break on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you like this show, please leave us a rating or a review. Thanks for joining us. I'm Talib Vizram.